You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and cannabis curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, June 7th, 2022. This is a episode number 296. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 31,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we're talking about Sacramento's report on the industry, the great cannabis microdosing PR conspiracy, cannabis tourism and how it's flourishing, regulators from legal states having a closed door meeting. We're talking about Julian Marley. The governor of Nebraska denies that cannabis can help veterans with PTSD, psilocybin and depression, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got for us today, Rico? Yeah, so my story is coming uh, from Benzinga by Elena Martinovich. Governor Ricketts says there's no evidence medical cannabis helps veterans with PTSD as suicide rates surge. I want to start my story off with a trigger warning as it discusses military veteran-associated suicide and PTSD. Nebraska veterans and mental health officials have teamed up to develop a program to improve state outreach and treatment surrounding medical cannabis, among other treatments for PTSD and suicide. Citizens wondering why it hasn't really gotten off the ground need not look further than Republican Governor Pete Ricketts. The conservative has taken considering cannabis legalization as a PTSD and suicide treatment off the table since unlike Democrat predecessor Bob Kerry, he ain't a fan. Kerry made waves back in 2010, joining media personality and fellow veteran Montel Williams, calling for medical cannabis to treat PTSD and to be dispensed at VA hospitals. But at a recent press conference in a room full of veterans, after announcing Nebraska will join 35 other states in a governor's challenge to prevent suicide, Ricketts declared, speaking on evidence that medical cannabis works for PTSD, there's no data to support that. Around the rest of the country, veterans diagnosed with PTSD and other physical and mental health symptoms looking for alternative treatments have found medical cannabis as a popular and effective solution. Per the article, according to VA forensic uh, neuropsychiatrist and researcher Hal Wurzel, cannabis helps those with PTSD experience far fewer symptoms and recover more quickly compared to people who don't. However, citing conflicting studies with Opposing conclusions on the plant's safety and uses remaining prevalent, Ricketts said military vets in Nebraska will remain prohibited from accessing the federally illegal substance for medical purposes. Now, according to most recent data from the 2021 National Veteran Suicide Prevention Annual Report, 6,261 veterans in the United States committed suicide in 2019. That's an average of 17 vets per day, which is twice as high as non-veteran civilians. 
You'd think the governor would at least be open to trying new solutions to help drive the numbers down in his state, but unfortunately, Ricketts just ain't having it. On a slightly positive note, the article does point out that despite cannabis remaining federally illegal, a recent post on the VA website stated veteran participation in state marijuana programs does not affect eligibility for VA care and services. A recent breakthrough with a bill sponsored by Democratic uh, Democrat Rep. Seth Moulton of Massachusetts allows uh, VA physicians to discuss medical cannabis treatment with vets as patients and offers protections for being honest about past consumption. This means the fear of losing federal benefits as a result of consuming may no longer be a factor. Though they cannot prescribe or recommend the medical use, vets are now encouraged to speak with their VA providers when questions come up about medicinal cannabis benefits and pitfalls. Personally, growing up as an Army brat and later having the majority of my childhood friends enlist and become vets themselves, veteran cannabis um, Veteran access to cannabis is something that I personally believe should not only be protected, but also encouraged under federal law. Far too many vets have come uh, have con- and have and continue to suffer unnecessarily after fighting for causes unknown to many outside of Washington abroad. Uh, the very least that they can do is guarantee safe access and proper guidance to something proven to cause less harm than the usual opioids. This is Rico Lamit, dopest dad on the street for State of Cannabis News Hour, and I'm interested in hearing everyone else's thoughts on this story. I mean, at this point in 2022, I don't understand why an elected official would come out against cannabis at all, but in terms of uh, coming out against it for veterans with PTSD, what, how, how is this a win for him? Because, Susan, I think the reefer madness is alive and well in the GOP, and it's a talking point, and there's a certain segment of this population that reacts positively to that. I think that's the simple reason. Yeah, I I would say veterans are definitely looking to get educated. The the part about being able to have a bill that supports um, veterans having comfort and being able to talk to their VA physician about either their marijuana usage or their uh, or the opportunity to be able to get their card. You know, we held a free medical marijuana clinic and we had several veterans there. And the two things that they were concerned about, do I like, will this disrupt my VA benefits? And then secondly, about holding my, my, um, my permit to carry a gun. And it's just a shame that you know, um, and they have so many medical issues that cannabis can be supportive. It's a shame that they kind of are just getting tossed around for political, you know, posturing. So um, I hope there's more movement and strong movement to support um, our veterans. You know, and I'm not really sure that it's a strong talking point for for anybody who's really, when when study after study is showing in surveys that 70% of Americans want cannabis legalized, at least for medical purposes, you know, you're going against the majority of your constituents, but I think they just have to because the insurance companies and the drug companies and the alcohol lobby are the ones that are giving them the most money now and the most money for the near future. It's definitely big pharma, um, I I think, that are in these politicians' pockets. They're not listening to the constituents. It has everything to do with who's paying them and not, and not the taxpayers, but the, the big checks. Well, this is kind of crazy because we've been talking recently about how Republicans are supposed to take the lead uh, on this with medical cannabis. And then also, if you look at Sioux Sicily and Arizona, you know, the cannabis that's been given to these veterans is absolutely horrible. So, you know, and then we do have data coming out. This seems ludicrous to me. Yeah, that's the point I was going to make. Uh, this is Dr. Felicia, that the the, the, the cannabis that Dr. Sisley used was, you know, like hemp. And smaller studies have shown that cannabis and CBD have, can both help with PTSD. So th- this governor has obviously got money in his eyeballs. So he's not looking at the real facts and listening to the people. We've got Becca up from the audience. Becca, did you want to weigh in? Yes, I did. I just wanted to quickly share, like, my husband is a veteran, and I can say that cannabis has greatly helped him, but I wonder how many people or veterans are specifically stating that they're using cannabis medicinally since it is legal for adult use in our country. We've also got Sam up from the audience. Sam, did you want to weigh in on this headline? Weird that the VA had like a whole dosing guide on how to use cannabis and for what can, oh, they do. So it's not that there isn't medicinal use. There is a whole dosing guide. If you want it, I can grab it real quick for you. Yeah, I'd love to see that. 
That's wild. But there is a dosing guide that's given to the doctor. So I found out about it from my doctor who, uh, when I told him, yo, I'm not taking those pills anymore. You can either wean me off the meds or I'm just going to stop taking them. Dr. Clifton and Dr. Felicia, have you heard of a dosing guide? I, how do you, how do you make a dosing guide when all the flowers are different? I don't understand. I'm not familiar with a dosing guide published by the VA. I mean, I, there's certainly dosing Pending guides uh, that are, that are, Oh, pending publishing. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I mean, there's certainly plenty of dosing guides that have been put together by various organizations, but they're not, uh, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't call them uh, anything that's been accepted by any major association like the Veterans Administration. Yeah, I, I work part time with veteran independent contractor and no, no dosing guide has come to attention or even heard of anything coming down the, the line. But on the anecdotal side, we see all of these organizations that are supporting like these veterans and it seems to be helping. We don't seem like all these suicides and stuff from these people who are getting their medicine. Shots you and the back channel, the VA dosing guide, Susan. Yeah. So it comes from HRSD. So it is coming directly from the VA. However, it's not something they're publicly giving out because they tell the providers they're not allowed to talk about it because it's still federally illegal. So it's one of those nice little things where they have the information, but because of the scheduling, they're not willing to be the first organization to publicly come out and say it. I look and forward to reading it. it. I'm I pulling it up it now. It's, I'm pulling it up now. It's providing a lot of uh, information. This is actually a pretty good little guide. It is. Hey, so make sure, hey, make sure we get that. Right. that I, I would love to see it as well, man. Yeah, Liz. Right, who's that speaking, Ross? Can Can you put it in the uh, links, Liz? And then um, we need to keep smoking the news. Here, I'll shoot it over to Liz. Thank you so much, Sam. Absolutely. It's one of those things where it's really hypocritical when they're studying this and they have stuff like a dosing guide, but they don't share it with anyone. To me, that just, I don't want to say pisses me off. It's but criminal. I all of this on my own as a veteran. And the VA told me, you have cannabis use disorder until I got a medical card and that disappeared. Wow. But to be so completely clear here. This is not a cannabis dosing guide. This is a cannabis provider education packet. The page on dosing talks about THC concentration and then and and different formulations, routes of administration, but it doesn't in fact tell you how to use it for particular conditions. It's it's an education packet. Interesting. There's definitely something we're going to be um, keeping our eye on and, um, and all the vets out there, especially in California. If you need access, you always have a place to, to reach out to with anybody on our team. So up next, she's an educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant and founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County that prefers her morning data drip lab tested and drama free. So make sure your headlines come with the COA and chain of custody has not been disrupted. Up next, Liz Rogan, what you have for us this morning? Thank you. Greetings, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Thank you for joining us today. My story comes from High Times by Jimmy Devine. The headline reads, The Great Cannabis Microdosing PR Conspiracy. So this article is an editorial by Jimmy Devine regarding microdosing, which he calls, quote, perhaps the most asinine practice and consumption today, and, quote, a PR conspiracy to increase the price but not the milligrams. So he says the conspiracy is that microdosing was never about consumer safety. Consumer safety was a Trojan horse with the premise being if you put 100 milligrams of cannabis inside a product, people will, won't be purchasing based on the value anymore. So it's really challenging for the small person. Follow the money. In addition to limiting consumers' access and of operators who base their sales model on value being competitive in the market, overnight it turned into a battle of marketing with cool and flashy packaging, new flavors and names, but everything had the same dosage. And who is harmed the most by that? The patients. Jimmy points out his clear evidence that he cites Carova's 1,000 milligram black bar and the 500 milligram 5150 bar brownies, which are really popular patients. As Carova launched in the early 
2010s and was followed by Bang Chocolates. Corova's tagline was unrivaled potency. And Bang Chocolates also had the first potency lab testing data available. And patients really thrived on that because this is something they could afford. Well, on January 1st, 2018, Black Bars went into the freezer. And over four years later, nothing has changed. So he says it's all smoke and mirrors. He says nothing has come along to fill the high dosage gap because of the almighty dollar. Because how could that be about safety? He says today about 29 people die in a car collision involving a drunk driver. But the idea that we have to deny the sick access to affordable medication, which is under the guise of public safety, is ridiculous. And he's saying the sheer economics these patients now face are absolutely horrible. $40 for a thousand milligram bar would easily now that that $40 it used to cost could run over $100. If you look at what you're buying, a hundred milligram edible. Um, so basically that you're still talking about a number right now that's about 150% higher than four years ago. And unfortunately, as we know, people are not making 150% more than they were four years ago. And so while it's also easy to focus on the patients, the small farmers are also losing in this. A lot of people would like to make high dose ed edibles and the dosage cap pushes the industry further towards mass production. Again, making it difficult for the little guy that may want to do low dose edibles. And it's uh, at this point, mom and pops that strayed into the edible side are surviving, surviving off the reputation that they built because the big people can pump out their gummies cheaper and ride the lower cost. So here's where we find ourselves. In conclusion, he says it's easy to understand why people are a little skeptical of the 100 milligram THC cap on, on edibles. He's saying, who is really benefiting from this? Are we safer? Um, he's saying that when Prop 64 and California's medical marijuana regulations were being created, it was a shit show, but we refused to go back and talk about the biggest mistakes that impacted the sick and not just the industry. And he also says, quote, the conspiracy in psychedelic microdosing is even scarier. The theory that everyone is trying to convince us to microdose instead of macrodose, so it's trickier to talk to God. Wild, end quote. So I wanted to, I think I have a, a few opinions on this. The first is that I do know as working with medical cannabis patients that dosage is key. I think we all know that. 2.5 milligrams of THC is actually the average dose of psychoactivity for someone who's never used cannabis before. And really that is where people should start. So I do think that this is helpful for the general public and public safety. I often find many patients uh, are about five to 10 milligrams for just kind of a light dose. But that's often recreational or people are using that. I hate to say recreational, but basically the thing is, obviously there's a lot of patients who really need a higher dose. And my concern is these people, again, are being screwed out of this with the financial as we're talking about. But also that if you look at this, I mean, you want to look at it in a medical perspective, but you also want to look at it on a patient uh, sales perspective. So it's challenging. I do think that these should be available for patients because they are having a really hard time. But I also do think that some of this comes from public safety. But I find challenging that we have to, you know, always regulate for the lowest common denominator. So I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts on this. I'm Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I agree with you, Liz. I, th I think that microdosing, especially in the beginning for people who are trying cannabis or psilocybin or psychedelics for the first time, that, you know, go low, start low and go slow is is a is a good policy um, in my experience, at least. But I also think that it's a double edged sword because you don't want to uh, prevent patients that really need a higher dose from having access to that higher dosage. Thanks for sharing this article. Um, and thank you, Jimmy Devine, for uh, publishing it and putting some truth out there. Uh, I don't, you know, he posits, are we any safer? I'd say no. Um, and he asks, who isn't able to afford the same quality of life because of it? And it's, uh, you know, um, poor and people who need a lot of cannabis to feel good. And who is benefiting from this? Uh, really, the businesses that aren't great at uh, producing cannabis products, the cannabis artisans that made high dose cannabis edibles have um, suffered from this. And the people who need those high dose products are also suffering. Uh, I'm someone that needs uh, a high dose to feel an effect. And with a hundred milligram limitation, you know, an edible doesn't even, you know, I need at least two packs of edibles to get two doses. 
Uh, and you know that gets expensive. It didn't used to be this expensive in the prior market, and I was much more affordably able to manage uh, my pain with edibles. Not to mention extra calories, right? Extra sugar. Yeah. And like I know he he references those uh, thousand milligram uh, Corova bars. They were fucking fantastic <laughs> back in the day and they saved a lot of fucking money it was one bite and send your ass to the moon those were exceptionally popular for patients and i know from talking to patients through my delivery services and stuff they were often trying to buy the highest dose thing they could and break it into the smallest doses for themselves to be able to use that and i think truthfully if this was you know we were really regulating for like the lowest common denominator and let's look at this how many you know are there all these car accidents from corova bars you know what i mean i don't think we're seeing that or all these other issues so i think that's something that would be rearing its ugly head if it was really there I didn't realize that Jimmy still worked at CBCB in Berkeley. That's, you know, he's been around hundreds, if not thousands of patients. So he's coming from that perspective. I'd say he's been around tens of thousands of patients. Yeah. Jimmy's, Jimmy's opinion and perspective is really, really seasoned. And he's experienced firsthand how patients and customers have suffered from the changes from, you know, a pre-64 market to the current marketplace. And that I, I would almost argue there's probably no one with a better perspective on how it's impacted the customers and the overall marketplace than Jimmy in the state of California. And he's a great guy too. Big shout out to Jimmy. If you guys have not uh, met or followed Jimmy Devine, uh, please give him a follow. And um, he has some really, really great opinions on a lot of stuff in the industry. And he's very, very respected in that sense, too, as Brandon just pointed out. Are we good? Are we keeping him moving? I think so. Let's keep going. Let's do it. So this attorney at law focuses on cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. She also does a phenomenal job documenting her adventures in each lane on social media and through her very appropriately titled podcast, Shall We Talk? Coming to the stage next, Shalina Panu. What you got for us today, Shalina? Thank you so much, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is New Studies Explain How Psilocybin Increases Brain Connectivity in People with Depression. According to SciPost, there are two new recently published studies in the New England Journal of Medicine and Nature Medicine evidencing how psilocybin works exactly using fMRI brain scans. They did a double-blind randomized control trial comparing those taking psilocybin and those taking a skitalopram. I don't know if I'm saying that right, which is an existing antidepressant drug to treat depression. To note, a study like this has never been done before. There have been previous studies showing how psilocybin may reduce activity in the medial prefrontal cortex, which is an area of the brain that helps regulate attention, habits, memory, and inhibitory control. Further, it also decreased connections between the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex, which may be responsible for the regulations of emotions and memory. Our default mode network is an active connection between these two brain areas and is active whenever we focus or rest. However, this does trigger past memories or thinking of ourselves and others. Psilocybin is said to reduce this activity and in turn removing the constraints of the internal self. That's why people who use psilocybin report an opened mind being more aware of the world around them. These new studies that were done compared the results with other fMRI findings from a different recent clin uh, clinical trial, and the findings are incredible. Only one day after the first dose of psilocybin, SciPost states the fMRI measures re revealed an overall increase in connectivity between the brain's various networks, which are typically reduced in those with severe depression. The default no mode network was simultaneously reduced, while connectivity between it and other networks was increased, backing up previous smaller studies. For some some people over others, the dose increased connectivity. However, those who had the greatest connection between these networks also saw the biggest changes in their depressive symptoms six months later. What's also interesting to note is that the people who took the antidepressant showed no change in the connectivity between the default mode and other brain networks six weeks after treatment started. Sidepost state that the study proposes the observed effects may be due to psilocybin having more concentrated action on receptors in the brain called serotonergic um, 5H2TA receptors than the antidepressant. These receptors are activated by serotonin and are active throughout 
um, network brain areas, including the default mode network. We already know that the level of binding by psilocybin to these receptors lead to psychedelic effects. Exactly how their activation leads to changes in network connectivity is still to be explored, though. Although antidepressants still show some improvements in symptoms with, within six weeks after treatments, both groups had reported improvement in their symptoms. However, psilocybin leads away tremendously with a person's overall mental state. The study showed that 70% of patients showed clinical response to psilocybin as opposed to the um, antidepressant with only 48%. Further, psilocybin patients were still in remission at six weeks, which was 57% over 28%. However, like with all studies, some patients still didn't even respond to psilocybin or even relapse after treatment, showing how difficult depression really can be to treat. Also to note, they stated that the success of psilocybin was heavily dependent on the environment in which it is taken. Although we are all different and people respond to different treatments, the facts do not lie. These new studies give hope for those battling treatment-resistant depression and anxiety that psilocybin may be the answer we've been needing all along. What are your thoughts on these studies? My name is Shalina and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Chilina, do they mention dosage at all in here? Just because we spoke about that just in the last I story. believe it was low dose. I think that was first what they stated. I, I think it was low dose, but don't, don't quote me on that. I find these modifications to the default mode network fascinating. And a lot of it is very difficult to explain to individuals who are thinking about doing this. But you know, my quick explanation is that you take the same highway to work every day and uh, and there's been, uh, they're doing some construction, there's some sort of accident. So instead of going through the usual pathway, you take a left or a right and you might go through a bad neighborhood and have a bad trip or go through a good neighborhood and have a good trip, but it takes your normal processing to different parts of the brain that it hasn't been before. And that seems to be a very easy way to explain to people how these how psilocybin and other psychedelics, you know, work to help create new neurologic uh, responses to stimuli in the brain. I love that explanation, Dr. Mary. That is good. Oh. Trying to explain to people how to use, you know, psychedelics and what it does for the brain. Um, that's that's a great explanation. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Definitely a great topic. And thank you for that story, Shalina. And moving on to our next, he is a fifth generation California and award-winning journalist, brand, con brand building content ninja, and a freedom fighting farmer's friend. Never afraid to hit us with the hard hitting truth. Mainstream media outlets refuse to. It's a, it is safe to say as long as he's active, tomorrow's his story will not only be told from a carpetbagger's viewpoint. Up next, Eric, Hiss Lareda, what you got for us today, me out of mono? Hey, thank you, brother. Uh, thanks, every, uh, hey everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from the New York Times, and it's farmers' markets are bountiful this time of year in California. With a subhead reading, the state has some 700 markets featuring some of the world's best produce, but it took legislative changes in the 1970s to help them flourish. So uh, even though this article isn't directly about cannabis, it is about small California farmers scoring an incredible legislative victory in the late 1970s against the corporate farm industrial complex that was really overrunning the agricultural sector in those decades. It's important to remember these victories and what they created when some of us tell, uh, some tell us nothing can be done. So jumping into the article, there are some 700 certified farmers markets in the state so many that it's easy to forget that as recently as the mid-1970s, farmers' markets were on their way out in California. Common in the 1930s, they were all but wiped out in the 50s and 60s by the regulations that helped make California agriculture a phenomenon worldwide. Sorting, packing, transportation, and sales were so thoroughly geared to the mass market that it was all but impossible for farmers to bypass wholesale distributors and packing houses. Small growers were sacrificing much of their profit margins. Tree fruit was going to waste by the ton because it could not be sold unless it conformed to strict standards governing its size, color, and ripeness, the better for shipping and supermarket display. Sound familiar? Uh, that changed in the 1970s as small farmers, consumer activists, and anti-hunger organizations lobbied to move agricultural policy, even if, even if only a little, at the federal level and in California. The state's Direct Marketing Act of 1978, signed by Jerry Brown, then in his first stint as governor, was a tipping point as public opinion shifted. 
Farmers markets took root from San, from San Francisco to Santa Monica. It was a two-year conversation with the agricultural industry. Ann Evans, a former mayor of Davis who worked at the time for the Brown administration, recently told me, even though it sounds obvious now. That long conversation and all that it altered isn't top of mind for the crowds who flock on Saturdays to my usual midtown market, jamming the stalls and food trucks even if COVID has not passed. They're here for the heirloom tomatoes one Islas uh, hauls up from Jacob's farm in Los Banos and for Eliana Carter's apricots and walnuts for winter's fruit tree. They're here for Bobby Mull's zeal kombucha fresh from the cooler. They're there for the artisan bread from Kenneth Curran and Tatton White bringing, uh, bringing down from their uh, Camina Bakery in Chico. Loaf so fra fragrant and fresh and steeped in the lineage of Northern California's artisanal food movement that I've seen people tear into them with their bare hands right there on the sidewalk. But, back, uh, but the backstory is there too, humming behind the scenes like good news and bad times. Things can change, it says, and a small change can make a big difference. So related to that, I just want to give a high five to Democratic Assemblymember Jim Woods, who represents a wide swath of the triangle, who introduced AB 2691 that allows small farmers to do event-specific direct sales at farmers markets and similar events, as well as the California Assembly Appropriations Committee that recently advanced the bill by a 12 to 2 vote. This is called getting shit done. I'm confident this will make it to the governor's desk and he will sign it. California small farmers did it 45 years ago, and I know as a state we can do it again. And that's what I've got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. And shame on UCBA for opposing that bill. Yeah, what the hell was that? I was just really floored, but I, I guess I get it in one way, unfortunately. Like Rico always says, follow the money. But you would think that especially Mr. Kylo, since he was a small farmer at one point, and he's got a lot of friends that are small farmers. Uh, you know, and really for, know. Or, for members of that organization to be terrified for some, and this has a one acre cap. So you can't participate in these markets. Uh, you have to be under one acre. So we get, we get that one acre cap in some, you know, form on this. So, I mean, for, for bigger companies to be alarmed at this is just absurd. I, agree. I love this idea, Eric, because I think that this is where people go to get that, that stuff. And, and really for terroir and other things, getting things as close to the earth as we can. And for the areas, we know that's always what benefits us with local pollen and all these local plants eating local. I think this is great. And I really hope that this starts a movement for craft cannabis so we can really respect those farmers. Um, I only shop at farmer's markets for my produce. I'm a plant-based um, individual and it's important for me in every state that I go to, everywhere that I visit, I find the local farmer's market. It's important to eat fruits and vegetables that are in season and it's important to support those small farmers. I, I only want to buy my cannabis from a farmer's market. I would prefer that um, if I had the choice. I would never buy my, my product from a dispensary. I would only buy it from a farmer's market. That's right. That's a great point, Nicole. And that's what I love about this. It's just the context. It, it belongs, you know, it belongs in a farmer's market, right? And the other really, really critical part of, about this is marketing. This allows the small farmer to directly interact with consumers and build their brand. So they can sell, yes, but they can also build a brand, which they just, they don't have the marketing dollars to do otherwise. So it's, it's really important on several levels. 100%. Uh, we've reached the half hour point, so I'm going to relight the room really quickly. You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Often the opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any exceptions in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. I'm very, very, very happy to introduce our newest addition to the team coming to the stage next. She's a, a cannabis patient. Oh, yeah. She is a cannabis patient, plant medicine advocate, and Roz McCarthy's right-hand woman on the left coast for minorities for medical marijuana. Also the founder of Purple Plant Magic, national brand ambassador for Black Buddha Cannabis, and the Encyclopedia on Power 88 in Las Vegas every Wednesday morning. Coming to the stage next is my good friend, Nicole Buffon. What you got for us today, Nicole? Welcome to the squad. Oh, thank you so much. 
Thank you all so very much. It's my honor to be here and, and report on this story for you. It, it, it's touched personal for me. Um, this My story today is uh, Higher Profile by um, featuring Julian Marley uh, by Sharon Letts. It's on High Times. Julian Marley is the son of Lucy Pounder and Bob Marley, born and raised in England, one of eight children that was born during Bob's marriage to Rita Marley. Like his father, Julian said, the Rasta man has a message to spread to the four corners of the earth, one aim, one unity, one love, with justice and equality in the mix. They are gone now, but the children learned all the teachings from our father's mentors in Jamaica, Julian shared. We learned the old ways and cannabis is keeping in meditation. His brother Damien sings of cannabis as a medication, but Julian speaks of it as part of a practice, a meditation. Julian says, medicating is always there. Medication, meditation, it's the same. When you smoke, you go into yourself, he explained. Depends on the reason, but the herb doesn't tell you what to do. It opens you to see what your consciousness is doing. The plant doesn't make you bad or good. That's the person. When you drink alcohol, we do know that it can make someone bad. If you drink too much, you can get bad. The herb, he said, is transparent and an enhancer, uplifting the partaker to be open to be themselves, to learn something, to be lighter, not dark or bad. But what are you learning, he asked. Something good or something bad. That's each individual's decision. Everyone wants to blame the plant when things go wrong, but you can't stop a plant that was here before man walked on the earth, a plant that was in the Garden of Eden, a plant that was part of the holy anointing oil of Christ. Why would you fight something like that? In Genesis chapter one, God said, see, I give you every seed bearing plant that is upon all the earth and every tree that has seed bearing fruit, they shall be yours for food. During the black power revolution of the 1960s, many attributed the uprising of the dread throughout the Caribbean was because of ganja. The dread was seen as a threat to the colonial structure that the British, French, and Dutch had established through the Caribbean region. They were demonized and criminalized, forced to flee their homes and families because of their use of cannabis as sacrament. In one island country, Dominica, in 1974, the Dread Act was enacted, giving rights to civilians and police to jail and kill anyone wearing their hair in the dreadlock style. The country also implemented policy not allowing anyone with the hairstyle to enter the country. These laws were not removed from the books for more than 20 years. I share this article today because Julian reminds us in his interview that this plant is more than medicine and the Rastas have always known that. They risked everything to keep those precious land race genetics alive for decades and to consider legalization without including them would be an abomination. They would have, with it, there would be no lamb's breath in Jamaica today if it were not for those Rastas refusing to follow Babylon law and taking their herb with them into exile. Next time you are on a Caribbean island, ask for the local and buy it from a Ras and be sure to thank them for their sacrifice. In the article, Julian is quoted saying, maybe they want to fight it because when it opens our minds, it keeps us away from the good healing, the good teachings of love and reasoning, of community and unity, what everyone is supposed to have, brotherly love. They paint a bad picture of the herb to distract us from the good picture, the best picture of ourselves. The devil is still here on earth, but if there's one soul out there doing good work, Jah will use that soul as an instrument to get the good message out into the world. Like our father used his celebrity in interviews, Jah used him as an instrument to enlighten people, and now he uses us. Jah and God are interchangeable, and Julian says languages are a barrier to all mankind being in unity. It doesn't matter who you are talking to, Allah, Jah, God, the creator, every name is different, but it's all the same, the same teachings, one love, one people, not divided. We learn other languages and learn to say the same things, but the name of the creator is always different. Man is one, but language divides. Inside the heart, we are the same. Live right, live humbly, listen to that ancient mystic in your ear. These are the teachings of Rastafarian culture. With the teachings, with the daily meditations, with the herb, you can learn to know yourself, he concluded. By the cosmic love of Jah, anything can happen. We can be that one good soul who helps other souls to see the light of love and the light of God. This is Nicole Buffon reporting for the Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you, Nicole, for this beautiful article. I think it ties in with Christopher Smith's uh, article yesterday, too, about how the study about cannabis um, helping with empathy. Agreed. It, it, yeah. yeah. The one love. Yeah. And, and we just, I just got off a call. I was talking to uh, Douglas Gordon, who's the founder of CanX Jamaica, and he's looking to work to do um, supporting Rastafarians um, who are still being left out of this whole new ecosystem of cannabis. And, 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 you know, there is so much 
connection and um, so much opportunity, but also the way that they look at this plant is so much different than, um, you know, our U.S.-based counterparts. And, and so how do you create economic opportunity, but also um, respect their love for the plant from a sacrament, from a spirituality perspective? And he's trying to figure out how to connect those two. So this is a great article, Nicole. I'm, I'm going to share it. Thank you so much, Nicole, for the story. Um, I'm, I'm really heartened to see young people embracing their heritage and, and lineage, and it's just very heartwarming. Thank you so much for bringing it. My father was a Rasta. That's why it touches a personal place for me. He was a doctor. He was a professional here in the United States, um, but was outcasted by many of his colleagues, by some patients even, um, because of his hair, strictly because of his hairstyle. But he was the first adult to introduce me to cannabis and its medicinal um, uses. Um, and as a doctor, he also explained to his patients how they could use it as medicine as well. As an OBGYN, uh, obviously women dealing with different pains and pain management, um, he was uh, an advocate for use of cannabis. Wow. Lucky you to have a dad like that. And it's been several years since I visited Jamaica, but even when I went with my locks, the, the, there is negativity against Rastas still to this day. So I'm not even from Jamaica. And just because my hair looked like that, um, I was treated a little differently. So it's, it's real. Yeah, the, the laws that were made in 1974 by the legislators were made by other Dominicans, not by the king, not by England. Um, it was made by other Dominicans that had been colonialized in their minds and believed the propaganda that ganja was bad. And so these people must be bad because they use it. We've got the tincture fairy up from the audience. Did you want to weigh in on Nicole's headline? Hi. Yeah, I was just saying that I'm actually good friends with Sharon Letts, who wrote that story. And being that I'm in this room today, uh, I imagine a lot of you are business owners who have amazing businesses. If anybody wants a feature written, um, she's always looking for good, solid business. Sorry, we got to stick to the headline. Let's keep smoking the news. That's now this entrepreneurial boss lady holds down head honcho duties for the ultimate lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis, while maintaining dual duties for six years now as the founder and CEO of Minorities for Medical Marijuana at the same damn time. Come to the stage next and bringing us a very exciting story is Roz McCarthy. What you got for us today, Roz? Hey, Rico. Hello, Susan. and Hi, colleagues. And it's Roz McCarthy. Good morning, everybody on. So happy to see you guys here. Um, this story comes from Marijuana Moment. And it's entitled, Marijuana Regulators and Stakeholders Hold Closed-Door Conference to Discuss the Future of Reform and Industry Challenges. And this is by Kyle Yeager. And we're just kind of going to breeze through it, but I think it's really interesting. The Marijuana Government Regulators, Trade Associations, and Businesses are meeting for a two-day conference um, beginning on Monday in Seattle to help chart a path forward as the state-by-state legalization movement continues to grow amid relative federal stagnation. The cannabis stakeholders will strategize about a wide range of policy considerations, ranging from promoting equity in the industry to interstate commerce to creating rules around emerging uh, cannabinoids. Details of the closed press gathering organized by the nonpartisan Cannabis Regulators Association were shared exclusively with Marijuana Moment ahead of the event. Um, there will be a, about a dozen panels, each of which are designed to inform the people in charge of regulating a medley of state and local cannabis programs as the policy landscape continues to expand and evolve. For example, you're going to see Michigan Cannabis Regulation Agency um, that broadly examines the state and federal roles in the future of national marketplace. Also, U.S. Cannabis, um, US cannabis Council is there. The Coalition for Cannabis Policy, Education, and Regulation, CPAIR, Council for Federal Cannabis Regulation, CFCR, and the National Cannabis Roundtable. Andrew Brisbow, president of CANAR, has, in the top Michigan cannabis regulator, told Marijuana Moment that he's very interested to hear about the perspectives of organizations that are evaluating the various proposals on federal policy reform especially given the direct impact those proposals will have on state regulatory operations. Um, interstate commerce will be among those topics with a panel moderated by an official from the Maryland Me Medical Cannabis Commission. Um, the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission will host another panel dealing with tax policy and the illicit market. RAND's Drug Policy Research Center and Whitney Economics will participate in that conversation. Um, another key point of interest for regulators and stakeholders is social economic equity. 
and specifically how to achieve equity through policymaking that recognizes the disproportionate harms that minority communities have historically suffered under, criminal, under criminalization. So again, this is a, uh, on day two of the conference, which is being attended by members of certain cannabis coalitions. It will take a regulatory health and market implication. Um, they're going to deep dive and talk about um, hemp-derived cannabinoids like Delta-8 um, THC. And then there's questions that will be raised in that panel will be um, about what are the considerations and challenges in drawing a line and figuring out what cannabinoids impairing and what's not, and figuring out what the end use of a product might be. Participants will discuss what happens with the federal landscape as those derivatives emerge on the market and how that might affect legislation like future large-scale agriculture bills. So I won't go any further. Um, you guys got the link there. So I just think it's kind of curious. You have the regulators that are getting together and talking about what the landscape looks like. And, and I think it's from... Um, they're not there. It almost feels like they're trying to kind of galvanize um, resources and information from a from a federal perspective and not a state by state perspective. And I would love to hear your thoughts about this. And if you think this is going to be something that helps move the, the ball down the field or is it still just are we still kind of in quicksand and not really going to see the, the benefits of, of this um, of this particular conference. So I'm Roz McCarthy signing off for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear your comments. I hope they invite regulators that have left, like Lori Ajax, because they have a unique perspective. And damn, I wish I could be in that room. I These, know. I, yeah. I don't know if I have to hear. Um, so uh, to hear Johnson with U.S. Cannabis Council was there. So if he's in the audience, to hear raise your hand, he can get, also give some commentary. But yeah, um, I would love to hear your thoughts. I want to. I want to see some leaked video and audio. How about that? My concern yes. is that the number of the folks that they have in the room are just lobbyists, and they're lobbyists for the MSO side. I would like to see more scientists on these panels uh, for a number of the topics that they are going to be discussing, like Delta-8. Um, so I think that's the one real downside to this. I see a lot of policy folks and not much science in the room. And, and, and so how do they get past, this is supposed to be a closed meeting, but allow lobbyists to get in? Like, that's kind of the like the money. The that they are asking for advice from. Right. Money. Do any of those organizations <laughs> represent small craft growers? No, I doubt it. No. Small craft growers are definitely losing out in that conversation. That's so wrong. Joanna Cedar's up from the audience. Joanna, you get the last word. I get the last word. Thanks for bringing me up, Susan. Yeah, I hope they start really talking about um, the different types of cannabinoids that are coming out of the lab. And because they're derived not from... Um, what is defined as cannabis or marijuana, they're completely legal under the Farm Bill. So there's phytocannabinoids, there's semi-synthetic cannabinoids, there's full-on synthetic cannabinoids that aren't even or aren't even cannabis that are are derived from from strange and weird sources. And because they operate on the same um, CBD um, or CB2 receptor, they're called cannabinoids. And if if they're not Figuring out some way to define all of these compounds and regulate them at the federal level, then I'm not completely sure that the cannabis industry in a lot of states is going to survive. Um, there are just too many hemp-derived cannabinoids out there now. Thanks a lot. I agree with you. Uh, let's keep smoking the news, though. We could do a whole room on that. And we will be doing a panel uh, at the conference in September. Bring, bring, bring me on. I'm working on this issue, and I'd love to, um, to educate people of why it's such a threat, um, both to the industry and to public safety. Thanks a lot. Yep, I'll bring you on. Let's keep smoking the news. She's the CMO of Event High and also a co-host of the founder, co-host and founder of groundbreaking professional women in cannabis networking series Blunt brunch. Coming to the stage next is Adelia Carrillo. What you got for us today, Adelia? Good morning, everyone. Today's article is Cannabis Tourism Flourishes into a $17 billion industry with aging millennials leading the way. Now, for those who join us on Monday and Tuesday, you all may see a pattern in the focus on the topics that I present, which are usually around events, tourism, and hospitality. Um, that is just an area I like to focus in. And today we get to put a focus on some of the potential numbers of how cannabis tourism can not only impact towns and cities, but, help, but may help many rebound after the past few years. And I am not alone in this thinking. 
Many businesses, governments, and regulators see cannabis tourism as a driver of economic development. So what is the possible impact of cannabis tourism? Now, according to a report featured in Forbes by journalists Will Yakowitz and Susan Rowan Keller, it can possibly reach $17 billion. Out of the $25 billion in legal cannabis sales in 2021, Forbes estimates that as much as $4.5 billion was driven by tourists. Now, these tourists also bring an additional $12.6 billion in retail and taxes. So to break it down, for every dollar spent at a cannabis retailer, there's a multiplier effect with an additional $2.80 injected into the local economy. Uh, Bew Whitney, founder and chief economist, economics, I can't say that, economist at Whitney Economics told Forbes. Now, the article gives a few examples, such as cannabis growers in California and many other areas are starting to incorporate cannabis-related tourist attractions in their farms. Uh, Examples of a couple of the tours include Emerald Farm Tours and the Mendocino Experience. These guided tours allow you to observe the work of cultivation technicians and scientists who process cannabis. Now, with cannabis also being so aligned with the wellness segment, it has also began to incorporate a lot of activations, um, such as cannabis meditation, cannabis yoga, and other holistic disciplines. Um, And according to the World Wellness Institute, the wellness tourist spends around 50% more than the average international tourist and 178% more than the typical domestic tourist. So in 2022 alone, the market is projected to reach 19.9, billion dollars, again, focused around the wellness tourism sector. Brian Applegarth, founder of Cannabis Travel Association International, anticipates that aging millennials will foster cannabis tourism. And by 2025, 50% of travelers in the U.S. are going to be millennials, Applegarth said. And their relationship to cannabis consumption is extremely normalized compared to the stigmatized industry leaders of today. An MMGY study conducted in 2020 stated that 18% of American travelers were interested in cannabis experiences while traveling. Now, when you actually narrow it down to include adults with an annual income of 50,000, that percentage alone increased to actually 62%, reported by High Times. And as we continue to uh, push the discussion forward here at Event High, we are seeing an increase in retreats, destination events, camping, and tours. So, what I'm curious about is to hear from those on stage or those in the audience of if anybody has any upcoming travel tips lined up and where are you all heading off to. So this is Adelia, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Hey, thank you for bringing that, Adelia. That's a great piece. Um, and just another real simple statistic is I, I spent a decade working with Visit California, which is California's tourism authority. And so pre-pandemic, um, the numbers were $145 billion per year annually, annually. So if you just figure that uh, cannabis can get 10% of that, which would be a no-brainer, I mean, you're already talking $14, $15 billion a year in tourism. So yeah, those numbers are pretty consistent. Is there a resource anywhere for the international traveler to know uh, where you can go, where cannabis will be easier to find? The counties are coming up with programs. Humboldt's working on a, on a, on a, a program. Mendocino County's working on a program. But the state-level Visit California has still been really... They've been tiptoeing around it for five or six years, but they haven't done anything. But on the county level, there's a lot that's happening, especially in Northern California. And, and, and Brian's very involved in that. It's about to break loose. Yeah, I was just going to add on to that, Eric, that... Uh, Brian's, uh, the organization, the Cannabis Travel Association International, they work with a lot of cannabis uh, businesses that are in the tourism sector internationally and throughout the U.S. Absolutely. We got to keep it moving because we are running out of time here. Thank you for that story, Adelia. Up next, though she splits her days and nights between politically political strategy and baking delicious treats, our next correspondent is a full-time feisty redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots. You know who it is next? The founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us today? Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my headline is coming from Must Read Alaska. Uh, Cannabis Connection, Wells Fargo shuts down campaign account of congressional candidate Jeff Lowenfeld. Uh, congressional candidate Jeff Lowenfeld says that without notice, Wells Fargo Bank has closed his campaign account, which had several thousand dollars in it. 
Lowenfeld wants the bank to at least issue him a cashier's check immediately so he can pay campaign bills that are due to vendors, but so far have received no reasonable response from the bank. His representative told him he will get a check in the mail. Lowenfeld thinks the problem is that his campaign manager, Patrick Flynn, has a small interest in a cannabis company, and the bank is known for steering clear of any funds that could be sourced or commingled with dollars related to cannabis. Lowenfeld said he waited for 45 minutes on the phone to speak with someone who could give him a straight answer, which he never got. It has happened to candidates before. In 2018, Wells Fargo closed the account of Nikki Fried, who was a former medical marijuana lobbyist and then a candidate for Florida Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Fried is now a candidate for governor in Florida. In that case, Wells Fargo's wrote Fried's campaign. As part of the onboarding of the client, it was uncovered some information regarding the customer's political platform and that they are advocating for expanding patient access to medical marijuana. The bank said, can you confirm the types of transactions expected for this customer and if any of the transactions will include funds received from lobbyists from the medical marijuana industry in any capacity? Uh, in the case of Lowenfels, he is a known advocate for legalization of marijuana, and he writes and speaks publicly about the topic. Uh, I would just say that uh, this is the exact reason why we need to pass safe banking. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been with companies who've had their bank's accounts shut down multiple times, um, and this is a problem that I know has greatly plagued the industry. Uh, for a political campaign not to have access to your money, uh, that's a major issue. Uh, so pass safe banking. This is Gretchen from State of Cannabis News Hour. He's not here, but he is. Pass safe banking. I am. Fuck safe banking. <laughs> I mean, this. Is, I, I would ask and, us oh, to do a, you know, a impromptu poll from our audience. Who's had their banking shut down? Yeah, raise your hand if you've had an issue with banking and you're in any way uh, in the the cannabis industry, ancillary or plant touching. Raise your hand. We're not going to ask you to come up on stage. But let's see, we've got uh, 104 people in the room, and we've got seven people with their hands up. Ten. Ten people. So, yeah. Maybe his political opponent reported, uh, reported him to the bank. For sure. You know, the irony of this is amazing. Here's this dirtbag financial institution that's been busted time and again. They had this credit card scheme. The real criminals are the banks. I mean, that's what's just hilarious about this. Just read about Wells Fargo's escapades the last few years. They're just D-bags. Exactly, Eric. But, you know, because it is the bankers and the banks that are so corrupt, they... they um, occasionally pop up and do a performative act that makes it like, oh, hey, we're not going to take this cannabis company's money. We're going to shut down the account as if they are good actors. It's a laughing joke. Totally. It's a joke. All the bankers care about is them not being liable or having any legal issues for their taking money. They'll take money all day. I'll, I'll tell you this and knock on wood. We, uh, our account is minorities for medical marijuana. We've had it for over five years now. And I have a really, really close relationship with the banker who opened the account to make sure the underwriters that are behind the scenes know that we don't touch plant. We, you know, and made it very, very specific. And like I touch base with them all the time, anytime I make a deposit. So, yes, I do believe that safe banking can eradicate some of that extra stuff you have to go around but those people that if you have bank accounts just like get a great banker that understands especially if an ancillary that you don't even touch the plant and just make sure that you stay close to them when i was at new frontier we were very explicit that all we did was write reports and the banks told us well you could be accepting money from people in the industry and that's why they would have to shut us down at one point uh, we were getting paid for our reports through PayPal, um, and they froze our accounts, and they froze the money that uh, we had been paid and had to wait over six months and fight with lawyers to get our money back from them. I mean, it's a major problem, especially for a small business or a startup who's trying to make it in this industry. Um, to have your money frozen, you can't wait six months to get your money back. This is a reason safe banking will help smaller businesses and folks out there. It's, it definitely needs to uh, take place. I agree, and Brandon Brandon Dorsky has a follow-up for tomorrow, so tune in tomorrow. We've reached the top of the hour. I did want to do a quick update. You remember that Canadian soldier who served cannabis cupcakes to the her, her fellow comrades? Uh, she lost her appeal in that case. It was a bad idea to give people cupcakes with cannabis in it. 
during shooting practice. But uh, anyway, that was a really great show. If you missed any of it, you can catch it anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. Thank you, Rico, for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being an important part of our show. You've had your daily dose. Now go out there and make a difference. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. It's election day. Don't forget to vote. See y'all tomorrow. Hey, what are you still doing here? The show's over. You just don't want to leave, do you? I know. We love you too. Help us grow by grabbing some of our merch. We've got hats, bags, hoodies, water bottles, all the standards. It would really mean a lot. Go to justsaycare.org backslash shop today. Really, I mean it today. With the supply chain issues, you might get it by Christmas. The good news is that inflation will be so bad, you'll be locked into a low, low price. Remember, justsaycare.org. Thanks. Okay, go listen to another podcast. Bye.